This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 428, a conversation with Devin Grayson. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 428, and I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Uh, for today's episode, we're having another conversation with Devin Grayson. Uh, she's previously been on the show before, uh, talking about her career in comics, uh, specifically some of her previous runs, like on Titans and on uh, Nightwing. Uh, but t- today's episode is a little bit different, as we're talking about her current work, uh, as she was the, uh, the writer of the recently released um, prose novel from Marvel, called Doctor Strange, The Fate of Dreams. It's a great novel. I really recommend you pick it up. It's a really enjoyable read. I actually had a chance to recently do a print interview uh, with Devin over at cgmagonline.com. You can check that out. Um, That was an interview that was done for uh, Comics and Gaming Magazine. Um, That's a Canadian publication headquartered in Toronto. So I had a chance to do a print interview with her prior to the release of Doctor Strange, The Fate of Dreams. Uh, So you can head on over there if you want to read that interview. Uh, We talked on some of the same spots here uh, in our conversation today, but for the most part, it's different material. Um, For a certain part of the episode, we kind of do a little bit of cagey uh, walking around, trying not to talk about any spoilers. And then we finally just drop the spoiler warning and say, nope, from here on in, we're just going to talk spoilers about the book. So for the first little bit of the podcast, uh, you can listen if you haven't read the new novel. Uh, after that point, it's your, it's uh, it's very clearly marked out. There's a point of demarcation. Do not listen past this point unless you're wary of spoilers. Um, and then we get right into it, talk all about um, her writing for Doctor Strange, her take on the character, how she wrote him, how she envisioned him. Uh, and it was actually a, a really fun conversation. We also talked a little bit about the recent Doctor Strange film. Um, so that's coming up in just a moment. Uh, if you want to listen to my prior conversation with Devin, you can check out episode 316 from last October, um, so just over a year ago, uh, when we had our first conversation talking about Gotham Knights, Nightwing, Titans, and more. Um, hopefully we'll have her back on the show in another uh, 112 episodes, uh, which would be a lot of fun if possible. Um, so before we get into the episode, you can always email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. If you do give us a, a review on iTunes, please let me know uh, as a uh, I am not initially set up to see any of the reviews that are on the iTunes um, US version. I'm in Canada, so I only see Canadian reviews um, without knowing to check. Uh, I am able to see other reviews, but I have to know that I'm looking for it first. Uh, so if you ever do give us a rating, first of all, thank you very much. I'll make sure to listen, uh, read it on the show uh, as long as you let me know where to find it uh, if you're not in Canada. If you're in Canada, I'll find it a lot more easily. Okay, enough with the preamble. I know that's what you're saying. We want to get right into the conversation with Devin Grayson, and here we go. Devin, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So it's been uh, just over a year. Uh, In that time, obviously, you were hard at work on the Doctor Strange novel. That's correct. And it's Doctor Strange, The Fate of Dreams. Now, did you come up with the title, or did did someone else come up with it? Uh, It was sort of by committee. Uh, I came up with the story, and we needed a title before actually the the um, outline was written, as I recall. So, oh, really? um, yeah, <laughs> it was a little bit tricky to figure it out, but I had a great uh, team of editors and we threw some ideas back and forth until we found something we could all live with. Now, I guess, how were you first approached? I guess we should start there at kind of the, the beginning, so to speak. Well, one of uh, an editor that I'd worked with before, Joan Hilty, contacted me about the project, and uh, she was at that time working with the novel department for Marvel, and thought I would be great for it, and I was really excited. 
And so I said yes. What was your prior knowledge of Doctor Strange? Now, I should say for those who are listening, there is also a great interview that you did with me uh, for the uh, cgmagonline.com. Um, so you can great. go and check that out. So I will repeat some questions, but uh, there is a great interview there if people want to check that out that we did actually prior to the release of the novel. Right, and I will be repeating myself, but it's a different format. So, um, yes, I actually did not know anything about uh, Doctor Strange. I, I knew that um, I'd heard of him and that my friends who really liked Marvel Comics liked him a lot and that there was sort of a good buzz about him, but he was not one of the characters I was familiar with. Fortunately, the kind of research that then entails, you know, diving in and reading everything that's ever been written about a character um, and really finding your own way through their story line is something I love to do. So I was really um, up for that. And uh, I didn't have as much time as I would have liked, but I got very fortunate in that, first of all, it was such good material. And then secondly, I accidentally stumbled across a sort of guide of sorts, um, which um, Colin Smith had wrote this great uh, multi-part, I think it's like a 12-part essay over at sequart.org, Sierra Echo Quebec Alpha Romeo Tango dot org. Um, and um, <laughs> it's hard to pronounce, so I want to make sure I'm spelling it correctly. Absolutely. Um, and he had uh, he just wrote this great case for how important the initial material, um, of course, that uh, Steve Ditko and Stan Lee had written was. And it, it sort of seems obvious when you're working with a character that you need to go back to that origin material, but. Um, as I've said before, that's not always as true as you'd think with superheroes, especially. Um, often they've changed so much by the time you're approaching them that there isn't that much you can learn. I mean, it's good to know where they come from and get a sense of that, um, but their real life force is being contained elsewhere by the time you get to them. Um, but that turned out not to be true with Mr. Stephen Strange. Um, and he, everything is there in those um, initial issues. And it's unlike anything that I'd ever encountered before, which I think is really at the heart of the Doctor Strange experience, right? Every time you come to it, you want to kind of be somewhere you've never been before. And you, you want to be a little disoriented and a little surprised and excited. And that energy was so present still uh, in that initial material. So I was really uh, grateful to Colin for writing that piece and grateful to uh, Ditko and Lee for creating such amazing comics that were still there to access. And once I had that, I kind of was able to find a through line through his narrative that made sense to me. When you have a character like Doctor Strange where, I mean, especially in the original Ditko material, uh, the visuals play such a huge part. And now you go... To an, uh, a medium where you kind of strip that away, what's that like, and is that uh, something that's kind of intimidating, or is that just more exciting? It's exciting, and I mean, for writing, we're always describing stuff, and if it was going to be a comic script, I would be telling the artist what I was imagining in a novel situation. I'm telling you guys, I'm telling the reader what I'm imagining, so that... Uh, visualization of what's happening is never absent when you're telling a story like this. It's just that I don't get the amazing partner um, of, of an artist to work with, so I have to do it all myself. So the there's a little more of a burden on me to communicate it, but the mental processes aren't very different in terms of what I'm actually imagining. It's just slowing down and describing it and figuring out um, what I'm really seeing in my head and how to best convey that. What I really liked about your take on uh, on Doctor Strange, and I'm going to try and not be spoiler-centric now, and we'll save that for later, <laughs> um, is how you found a way of making him very human without 
taking away that aloofness that is a big part of the character and how he presents himself to the Marvel Universe. Yeah, thank you. That was a challenge. Um, and I coming at him initially, when you just look at him straight on the page, he kind of looks like everything that's wrong with Western literature, right? I mean, it's the the single white male who is the chosen one story, and the you know, and he's a magic user, so he can do things nobody else can do. But it actually turns out that there's this very um, enlightened, democratic, approachable story lurking under all of that. And um, figuring out who he was and working with him as a scientist, I think, was the key uh, to getting under that. And what who he really becomes, or became to me at least, is an amazing student. He's so good at studying. And first it was medicine, and then it was magic. But whatever it is that he's interested in, he has such a sharp intellect, and he throws himself into it um, you know, so completely, which is something I can kind of, that, that almost obsessive level of research I can kind of relate to. Um, and uh, that's how he finds his way through things, sort of empirically making sense out of the world. And then he becomes um, the sort of a caretaker of a world that couldn't possibly make sense no matter how much you try you know that just the sheer volume of what he deals with and the the variables and you know it's completely beyond quantification and he knows that and he sort of has to find a way to be comfortable there which i think is a real challenge for him um and part of what I love about the story is that he does that so successfully that he's able to kind of rest there and um, maintain his curiosity and uh, not get burned out on all the unknowables, which I think would be easy for him to do. It's interesting that you say that, too, because having read the, the book, I mean, the character of Shur, uh, I apologize for pronunciation of the name, Sharanya, almost Sharanya, sounds like yeah. a, a very similar character beat. Um, right. She kind of comes uh, yeah. out like when we first see her that she's very skeptical, very much a scientist, uh, and having to kind of see this new world. That's right. And the idea there was to give him um, a chance to encounter that part of himself again um, and sort of watch her going through it. And he's he's a little bit protective with her about it. He kind of, you know, she she enters pretty much in the middle of the drama and he knows pretty fast that that she's going to be part of it and there's no way he can shield her from it. But he's thinking the whole time, is she ready for this? Is You know, what what is she making of everything we're seeing here? And those were things that he questions he himself confronted at one point. Um, at the beginning of the novel, uh, again, I'm trying not to be spoilery. Um, it, I, I like the way that you really, you kind of coaxed us into this world of magic. And like, it didn't feel like we, we came in and everything was kind of going crazy. And so we, we start off at a very kind of, uh, understandable level. Like we have, um, I forget what they are now. Like the, basically that there's demons always kind of around that we don't mm-hmm. notice, but that are kind of hanging around people. And you kind of, right. you, you go f- almost at a very mundane level to start kind of ease both the uh, the reader in and also the characters, and then we eventually go into much crazier and, and larger depths. Was that kind of by design? It is, and it's um, let me try to do this without being too spoilery too. It's also mirroring something that's happening with Stephen throughout the story. Um, and if you notice, he's very cautious and calm um, and uh, deliberate in the beginning, and then yeah, at 
starts to change. And the idea is that hopefully you don't notice the second it changes, but that as the story continues, you start going, wow, that he's not really acting the way he was acting at the beginning. Um, you know, it's, it is something different. And then he, of course, eventually comes to the realization of, of why that is and what's happening. And um, hopefully you're there with him. But the idea was to try to get the reader caught up in that same rush of not quite noticing how much things were changing until you were already in the thick of it. Um, to go to go back to the kind of the, the genesis of the story, so that the title kind of came about before the outline was was put together. So you already had, did you were you already formulating how you would kind of make it about dreams? Or again, I'm trying yeah. not to be spoilery. <laughs> I knew that I think it's nightmares all over the cover and stuff. It's it's clear that he's there. So I don't think we're spoiling anything by mentioning him. And I I knew that I wanted to use him. Um, So that necessitated being in the dream dimension. I think at the time we came up with the title, I hadn't finished working out the architecture of the dream dimension, which is um, the the main space that Stephen and his uh, party are moving through during the story. But I, I definitely knew that that's what I wanted to work with. Um, I uh, My mom's a psychologist and my dad's a sociologist, so I'm really... Um, I, I loved the idea of going into the dream realm and looking at it both through modern brain science, which has changed so much. I mean, in terms of what we now understand about what the brain's doing and what dreams mean, but then also having this magical element and being able to be uh, completely on the other side of that and um, all the ways in which dreams are still totally open to interpretation and, and completely not uh, locked down to any one meaning. And then how do you sort of create a world out of that? Um, Also, the other reason that the dream dimension was so helpful for this story was that going into it, we knew the movie was coming up um, and we didn't want to cover anything that was going to be covered in the movie or, um, you know, undo something that was going to be reset up in the movie in an interesting way. So we had a lot of material we sort of had to stay out of the way of. um, And it became so much material that I started to worry that we weren't going to get enough of Stephen's life in there. We weren't supposed to use Clea. We weren't supposed to use the ancient one. We weren't supposed to be specific about his age. And I kind of felt like those were all very important elements. Um, but if you take him into the dream realm, then suddenly we're fine with all of that, right? We can explore all of it because they're not really there and we're not contradicting anything that might come up in the movie. So uh, that became a real gift. Hmm. I hadn't even thought about that, but that's a, a, a really interesting concept that, yeah, nothing's really, you're not pushing forward. You're just kind of dabbling with the past almost. Yeah. <laughs> It, yeah, and where he is now and who he is, and, and I think most importantly why you should care about him. Um, I, I, I understood that to be the mission of the book, even though it wasn't explicit. But to me, if the book was coming to uh, sort of introduce him to people that might not know him and or to su- supplement the movie, you know, or, or to just be part of his legend, then the most important thing in there would be a connection with him. One thing I, I really love throughout the book and something I don't think – um, has ever really been addressed as thoroughly, especially not in comics, and I think it's just because it's harder because of the style of storytelling, is how much emphasis you placed on his hands. Because uh, throughout the comic, you, you mentioned how you know he'll, he would uh, you know make a fist and it would be painful, or there was just comment, like he was often t- uh, twitching or twingling with his fingers, and that's something you can't really show on the page the same way. But in a novel, you can really take that time to explore, and I thought it was... It made so much sense, and it made me wonder why we hadn't seen more of that in other mediums, because it's this huge transformative event in his life, and then we just kind of move into 
magic, and we never really hear anything about his hands again. And yet, in, right. in your novel, it never goes away. We are always very present of this huge impact on his life that Axton had, and I really like that touch. Thank you. I actually, I think I got that from the Aaron Bacalo run, and, and um, Jason Aaron suggested in the current run that they always hurt, and I think that they hurt least of all when he's casting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, because it's such a visual medium and they're doing so many other things I, I think it was maybe a thought that he had at one point or you know it was in one of the captions and then they kind of move on and they don't discuss it again and for me there's so much of him in his hands and that's such an important um, anchoring element to both his past and who he is now um, you know he you, you, he's using his hands constantly to do the magic with right so they're still such an important part of what he's doing and of course as a surgeon they were everything um, so yeah, I really felt like that had to be um, brought forward and, and maintained. I, I don't think pain, pain isn't something you forget, and I feel like it is um, chronic pain, and so it's something he's consistently aware of, um, and his focus keeps being brought back to that. Um, it also maybe on my part was a little bit of rebellion about that axe that they have him using all the time in the <laughs> comics, uh, and it's on the cover too, I think. Um, but I, it's just to me to have a character who is, first of all, the most powerful magic user in your universe, and secondly, um, has severe hand damage, carrying a giant medieval axe. I, I understand that it's magic, but it still doesn't make any sense to me. So um, I think I was explaining that to myself over and over again as well. Although, I, I'm trying to remember, wasn't there an axe at some point in... Uh, yeah, he uses it because it, it's part of his current <laughs> lore. And I and I and so yeah, he, he does at one point grab it, um, and I make it clear that it's magic, and he summons it out of midair. Sure. It's not like he's got it strapped across his back under the cloak. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, and plus, he's, um, they're in a dream dimension at that point, too. So I guess... They're in a dream dimension mention and i won't do any spoilers but if if you pay attention to the structure of the story there's something else going on with him at that point that sort of it, it makes it more likely that he would do it then than that he would do it at any other time so <laughs> um a question i had about um uh how much i mean there, there's some interesting touches here which very much place this in the modern marvel universe i mean there's a, a brief mention to parker industries um, right. um like what was it like kind of putting those in, was that something you were asked to do? Is it something you wanted to do to kind of ground it for the fans of the comics who were reading the book? Or where do those kind of touches come from? I think I wanted to do that. Um, I love how alive Marvel's New York is and how much is going on there. And I think part of the thrill of following any of the superheroes through that space is knowing that all the others are around too. Um, so I, I didn't want Steven to be divorced from that. I wanted that same New York um, available. And uh, I, my marching orders were to stick fairly close to the current run that I was just discussing, the, the Aaron Bacalo. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they have some great stuff, like with Chondo's um, The Bar With No Doors. And um, I, you know, I absolutely wanted to use all that and uh, keep him where he is now. But then... For myself, the exercise is sort of, okay, so if this is where he is now, but he came all the way back from this uh, Dicko Lee run, how do we connect those two things? And how do we find a through line for his life and explain how that character became this character? Um, And that's kind of how I approach all my characters. I sort of think, okay, if everything that's been written about them is more or less true, or at least somebody's version, somebody told the story that it happened, um, who does that mean this person is? And how do we make a connection between all those elements that make sense psychologically, that, that gives us a full person that we can approach 
that doesn't um, that nothing we've read about them will seem like it couldn't possibly have happened to that person. So um, that's that's that was the exercise I gave myself. <laughs> With the character of Jane, um, was it your decision to make like her an inhuman, or was there ever a discussion of making her a mutant instead? Um, I. I knew that we couldn't use mutants. I don't even think they told me that, but I think they would have if I'd said mutants. Um, but I just, I know what's going on with Marvel right now and that you're supposed to stick to the Inhumans. So I think I uh, I made that call, but I, I imagine if I hadn't, they probably would have guided me that way for the time being. I mean, ostensibly, I mean, there, there's nothing in the character that needs to be either way. I mean, as long as they're right. a powered individual, that's really all that was required. Although I do like her connection to the Kree. Uh, I think that actually... Mm. Uh, does end up having a little bit of meaning in the um, in the uh, realm of healing dreams. But what uh, uh, I guess for those who haven't read the book yet, what other um, what other things do you want to kind of mention to kind of uh, really prompt people to go pick up that book already, so that we can talk about spoilery things. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I guess just that uh, I think all of us love Nightmare, and we've always talked about Nightmare being in the Nightmare realm, but we also all know that there's more dreams than that. And so uh, this book really develops uh, the rest of the dream realm, and you, you end up with a much bigger space to move through with all the different kinds of dreams that are possible, and they all have personified um, sovereigns in charge of those realms. So you get to meet some new characters and move through some new spaces. And because Steven's moving through all those spaces, I hope you're getting to know a lot more about him as you follow him, say, through erotic dreams and nightmares and um, all the other uh, prophecy dreams, everything. How much fun was it to write those those dream sequences when Steven's kind of trying to figure out where he is at first? Oh, so much fun and, and such a great, um, you know, I, I've, I talked in the book many times about how disorienting it is when you first get into those spaces. And that's true even for him. He's, he's sharper than most and more clear on uh, being in different realms at different times and what that means and how to adjust to that. But still, when you're confronted with your own emotional subconscious baggage, it's, you know, there's nowhere to run, right? You're, you're kind of in your own head, even though you're not. So, um, yeah, it was great fun and it gave me all the room. I needed to to talk about him and what was going on with his life. And um, again, I'm trying to avoid a spoiler, but there was uh, a contradiction or something in his personality that had changed a lot from the way he was uh, first introduced to who he is now. And I wanted to find a... Um, uh, a plausible reason for that. So um, I think I did, and I think I it, once I found it, it really felt right to me, and it was really interesting and fun to explore. All right, so this is going to be the demarcation line. Uh, now we're going <laughs> to now we can talk about spoilers. So if you haven't read the book, don't read this. It's hard. I'm talking about his heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, so moving into the slightly more spoilery realm, or at least to the idea that we can talk a little bit more about what actually happens. Um, when you were constructing kind of what the dreamscape was going to look like, were there other dream realms that you didn't have a chance to inject that you wanted to? Or that had to be cut uh, for brevity? Not really. The um, As you might imagine, the realm of erotic dreams took the most drafts, um, you know, trying to hit the right note of making it erotic enough but not over the top. Um, but, no, I think those were the, the important ones. You know, he had to be a nightmare. He had to – he had – erotic issues he had to deal with. Um, prophecy was a huge part of what they were exploring. And then, um, so we're totally past spoilers. So, um, so epic dreaming is then, um, 
the, the logical place for all those to conclude. And it was, of course, um, always <laughs> going to be the, the linchpin of the story. So, Where did you kind of come up with the idea for Epic Dream as kind of like the, the adversary, but also just the concept at all? Because the others seem a lot more like, yeah, I can think about that. Like Nightmare makes sense. The prophetic dreams make sense. The, you know, the healing dreams, uh, the erotic dreams. Where did the Epic Dream concept kind of come from for you? Well, it's a real thing. Uh, I was looking at the classification of dream types, uh, and it is one that was less familiar. Um, and I think that is because of the time that we live in, and it would have been very familiar. Um, you know, back in biblical times, they were all epic dreams, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's just sort of uh, come down and down and down from that. And I thought, well, what would that feel like if you were the entity in charge of that? And what would you make of it? And what um, if there are dreams that inspire people, what are they inspiring people to do now and how different is that? And once I started to think about that, you you pretty immediately see the, the trouble this entity is in, right? I mean, it, it's a really, really, really different way that we look at epic dreams now, both because of how we look at dreams in general, but also because of what we're inspired to do and how many of us there are and how images work in our head. And um, I needed someone who could challenge nightmare you know it was something bigger than nightmares and and so that uh kind of lent itself well to to both those themes of uh kind of what i was doing with steven if if he was born in the 1930s and i sort of tried to keep that without saying it clearly um you know then look at how much his life has changed and how much the world around him has changed and on a much greater scale the same thing had um happened to numinous and she was dealing with a world so very different than the one she'd started in and flailing a little bit and trying to find her place in that she she didn't make the um the crossover as elegantly as Stephen did. No, um, there's the uh, the portion where you have, I guess, snippets of different people kind of being inspired by the dreams, but they don't really <laughs> work out that well for them. Uh, that was horrifying. <laughs> like it, it was tough to read because it was it was, uh, yeah, it was dark. Yeah, it's. Um you know, inspiration is such an interesting thing. And when we think about, we we talk about it as a good thing always, right? But we're also inspired to do terrible things um, or inspired to do things that are so far beyond our capacity that the results then become terrible. Um, I was thinking about everything. I was like um, thinking about even star search and stuff, you know, and those people who stand on the stage and go, but I want it so bad. And they're, they're convinced that that's it. That's all it takes to get something is how badly you want it. And they've really um, reacted. Reality TV has kind of sold us that message that, um, you know, but that's, no, what about skill? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. What about all these other things? And if you don't have them and you're in a situation where it's not singing that you're doing, but something a little more important, um, that can be, you know, hugely problematic, as we saw. Well, how much fun was it to write Nightmare? I love Nightmare. He he was, I knew immediately I wanted to use him. And um, I didn't initially see the connection between him and Jane. That kind of surprised me. It, it happened organically. And then once it had happened organically, I realized I could use it um, to kind of uh, help the plot. But um, yeah, he's the personification of nightmares. It's just great to think about him. And he sort of has always had this urbane voice and he knows Steven so well. And they have such a long relationship that there was so much to work with there. When, when you were kind of envisioning nightmare, I mean, are you using, I guess the, the deco version is the one that was kind of standing out in your head. Uh, I guess so. Um, yeah, probably mostly, although he, he, you know, with Steve,
Steven, it was about taking a character and, and making it all make sense for one life. With Nightmare, I think he is different no matter who's looking at him. So mm. I think he, he's literally all those things all the time. So there's less conflict about finding a nightmare that makes sense. You're just finding Steven's nightmare and how he's seeing him. Um, yeah, I don't. I didn't struggle with that. It was just pretty clear to me who he was. So his voice was pretty easy to tap into? I had it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what I'd read. I'd read a couple different um he's he's had some series that were kind of, you know, nightmare mini series and I'd read a bunch of those. So by the time I was done with them, I had a pretty good sense. I'm trying to remember who wrote those. Um but of course it's eluding me at the moment. But yeah, there there's a bunch of material from the uh, 90s and Where did Sharanya uh, sorry, sure. How do I pronounce her name? <laughs> Sharanya, you're right. Sharanya, yeah. okay. Where did she come from for you? Like what obviously you needed a character to kind of uh, be more of our point of view character and work with Steven, but but beyond that, where did she come from in your mind? Um I yeah, I wanted a scientist. I wanted um a person of color or someone who wasn't white, you know, some other ethnicity to bring in. Um I and then as the um the parable started to emerge about the, you know, the, the healer and the bridge and the remedy. I needed the bridge. So I needed someone who was really caught between, uh, two different worlds. And, um, as I started to think about that, there were a lot of ways to go with that. And I thought, well, really she should be all of them. She should encompass, uh, encompass every single version of, of living between two lives that was possible. Um, so um yeah she's she's first generation her parents are from Karnataka um and she you know she's she's part indian part american she's bisexual she's a scientist but but you know clearly ready to develop uh this this deep spiritual belief um so it was sort of all about playing with somebody who's um balancing between two worlds which of the uh, the dream sovereigns, uh, besides obviously the uh, nightmare and uh, the uh, not, not numinous, her name. yeah, that's <laughs> numinous, numinous, yeah, numinous. Yeah. Um, I guess the others we had were uh, from the erotic dreams, the healing dreams, and prophetic dreams. Which of the kind of the, those three sovereigns was your most fun to write? Um, I guess Predivinus from prophetic dreams, um, only because I decided um, somewhat arbitrarily, I guess, but that he. Um, being being the uh, the sovereign of prophetic dreams, he can only talk in prophecy and riddles, and he sort of can't ever give you what you need straight up. Um, and which, of course, Stephen has very little patience for, and even he himself, Predivinus, gets frustrated with it at some point. Um, but it was really fun to try to think what he needed to communicate and how to um, encumber that communication, as it were. You know, he's got he's got this to say, he's got this much of a time frame, and then also once I knew what his fate was, well. Clearly, he can't see past a certain point. Um, so, how do you keep all his uh, warnings and prophecies, uh, you know, within that chronological space? And chronological space is such a weird thing in the dream realm, anyway. So, there were some fun elements to play with there. When you were constructing the kind of the, the final kind of battle sequence, um, I, I like that they're in a vehicle and they're driving across like a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> there's another bridge for you. <laughs> yeah. What what was it like kind of constructing that in your mind and the idea that in you know it's in the dream world anything can kind of be what it needs to be and obviously you have Sharanya being able to kind of be a dream weaver for lack of a better word. What was it like kind of putting together that climactic moment? 
Um, it, it was it was exciting. There were a lot of moving parts. You know, the bigger story there is between um, Numinous and Stephen, but then of course, you know, both Jane and Shrani end up having an important part of that, and we're in Nightmare's realm, and he's sort of trying to keep his. Um, you know, his realm up and, and keep his forces together. Um, I think it was a little bit intimidating just in terms of that we were in Nightmare, and I, I never could tell if the book was scary enough when we were in those spaces. I, I really... Um, I, I exhausted my ability to come up with new monsters. Like you don't, you don't think about that. But <laughs> as I was sitting there describing things, every time we went into nightmare, I had to have you know handfuls of really horrific things, and that um, that was more difficult to do than I thought it would be. Um, and I realized the things that scare me are more um, personal, smaller, you know, human things, and those are more difficult to personify. Um, but uh, it was fun to try, and it was fun to have all those forces <laughs> at each other's throats, so to speak. And um, the landscape was uh, – there was a lot to work with there. So it, it was a very um, – I, I did my best to create a visual space that would give me enough to describe and lead the reader through. You mentioned before the idea of the architecture of the dream world. Did you have? Did you ever like kind of sketch out what the dream worlds would look like in terms of in relation to each other, where the pathways were, where the different realms were, and how they kind of bumped up against one another? Or did you have that kind of laid out in your mind, or did you actually sketch it out? Or um, I did have a map in my head. Uh, I never wrote it down. Um, as a writer, I'm amazed at the comic people who can do both the drawing and the writing part. To me, they're just completely separate things, and I, I can't even do a stick figure to save my life. So, um, but uh, but yes, I did have a map in my head, and I had a timeline for the map because, of course, it's changing the whole time. Um, but it's also a fluid space. Um, so even even with the huge changes happening with the absorptions, because um, I had to keep sort of track of the realms as different realms were swallowing them up. Um, some of the realms were disappearing and some of them were sort of becoming hybrid realms. Um, but at the same time, even at its most safe and normal, um, it, it's pretty a, a very fluid space. The dreamers are moving in and out of and changing um, by their very presence there. Given how you ended up kind of writing Stephen, do you think it was it almost kind of worked out for the better that you that you didn't have access to present day Clea and only kind of the haunting memory of her? Maybe, yeah. I guess it, um, you're right. It kind of forced me into the story that I ended up telling, which I end up, uh, you know, which I hope is a good story. Um, I really liked her and was really curious about their relationship and wanted to do more with her. Um, but then I realized I think he is too. I think he's confused about what happened, um, and they're, um, you know, asking people in the. Marvel editorial offices. Well, what? Oh, no, come on, just tell me straight up what is the status of their relationship? And realizing that nobody could, that, that there isn't a concrete answer to that right now, was sort of like, well, okay, then that's the answer. The answer is that we don't quite know, and it's it's uncertain and up in the air, and that's actually a very real thing, um, especially in you know talk about your long distance relationships um, and in marriages, and uh, they go through lots of changes and strange spaces. So. Um, uh, Catherine Inamanim had just put together an annual recently that had a big Clea story in it. Um, mm -hmm. but of course I didn't see that till after the book was, um, complete, but, uh, it doesn't really contradict anything. She, she's moving through a different space. They're still emotionally connected, but, um, they're not physically together and, um, yeah, I'm really, I'm still curious about the relationship and think there's more there, but I agree with you not being able to use her and having that, uh, limited way of dealing with her presence, I think actually probably did help the story. How did you enjoy it? Got, it sorry, go ahead. 
Oh, sorry. I was just going to say it got me to what I consider sort of the the heart of the issue or, or the, the most important uh, moments that uh, come up in the book are about his longing and his confusion. So, yeah, if she'd been there, that would have been different. What prompted or what inspired you to um, kind of come up with the, the healing realm manifesting as kind of a Cree science? Um, I realized that I, um, I kept thinking to myself that humans aren't the only ones who dream. And so it was you know, it wasn't right that I kept having sort of uh, human earthling esque entity. I mean, they're you know they're not they're gods. You know, what what is nightmare? He's some kind of um, <laughs> demon or something. But um, I wanted to make sure that different races were represented. And because Jane was there with the Inhuman, it suddenly occurred to me that if we had a Cree in healing, which made sense, they're a very scientific uh, community and uh, have very advanced medical and science. It, it just, I don't know, it made sense to me and it helped sort of solve the issue of some diversification uh, and of giving Jane something to connect to that would give her um, a hint of how to move forward. I guess it also kind of makes it easier to make a very aloof uh, dream sovereign because it's a different, it's a different race. It's a different culture. Like it's so different that it almost kind of, not that it writes itself, but it, it, it lends itself more easily to being a little bit more dismissive or, you know, better than you in a way. Right. And then, and also I think um, just by the nature of being the sovereign of healing dreams, she would have a sort of proprietary relationship with Stephen. Like he, he's so much a healer and had spent so much of his life in medicine, um, you know, that he sort of doesn't remember her. And she's like, of course I know you. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I liked that dynamic of, of um, that, that she is in some ways the, you know, behind the scene patron saint of doctors or whatever. And so she's paying attention to that part of his life, even though he isn't anymore. Do you find that um, using the dreamscape as as wide and varied as it is also allowed you to um, make things a little bit more intimate for the characters? And so, I mean, often with Doctor Strange, it seems like some of his adventures go very crazy, very big. I mean, you have characters like Eternity and the Living Tribunal. and the Yeah, Mamos, it's so these, cosmic. Yeah, these really big things, which are even harder to do when you don't have some of the visuals to kind of use and because these are very out there concepts like eternity i don't even know how i described that in a book (laughs) because it's such a visual thing so do you think kind of going inwards to the dream realm really helped um make it a more intimate atmosphere well um you know as i said before i i kind of needed to be there to talk about some of the things i needed to talk about with steven and there there wasn't any other way to use those elements um I, i had to find um some kind of um reality for them to exist in that wasn't the core Marvel superhero reality. Um, so it, it was a very safe space for that. Um, and as I also said, you know, dreams are something that I'm very interested in and it was fun to look and they, you know, like Steven, they have both a scientific side and a kind of more spiritual, um, allegorical almost side. So, um, I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> oh my god, I almost... I, uh, I guess the idea of um, did did bringing it down to the dream realm uh, make it a more intimate kind of storytelling experience? Oh, yeah, right, yes, because then also um, we're in an environment that is partially feeding off of Stephen himself. Um, and, uh, you know, when they go through the nightmare realm, 
together as a group. Initially, they're going directly through his nightmares specifically. Um, so, right. So, yeah, you're, you're in a much more personal space. You're in a much more interior space uh, that definitely let me explore the character in ways that I wouldn't. And also in a, in a, in a sense, it makes Stephen more vulnerable because if he'd just been leading them through one of the many dimensions that he knows about, you know, they, they would have been quietly behind him freaking out and he would have been like, it's all right, just come this way. But, but he sort of has to hesitate in this because they're learning so much about him as they're moving through this and he's not really comfortable with that. Um, you know, it wasn't what he set out to do. It, 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 it almost could be like, you know, you want to get to know me, follow me through my dreams. But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't what they were there to do. Uh, and so uh, I think it made it a little more difficult on him. And it also let me set up the difference between what Sharanya could do as someone who was actually dreaming as opposed to him who was there physically and therefore kind of beholden to the realm's physical laws, at least uh, at that time. You said before that uh, Jane and Nightmare's uh, kind of relationship and rapport wasn't something you originally envisioned, but kind of came about as you were writing naturally. Why do you think that works so well? Well, I, th- I mean, she's a little bit of an emo or a goth or something like uh, So I guess it makes sense that she wouldn't be afraid of him, and, and she's sort of so deeply into her own stuff at that point. Um, and then I guess once I jump back into his head, I realize the experience of having somebody there who isn't reacting with complete terror is so unique and fascinating and unusual um, that it was sort of intriguing. And her plight uh, kind of mirrored his in a sense. They were they were both being pulled around by the, the different dream sovereigns and, and all the disruption in that realm and and so i think you know he ended up with this little tinge of protectiveness that i don't know going into it i would have felt comfortable assigning him but but discovering it organically it it made sense to me and it fit and um every time those two characters were together talking there was just sort of a warmth and a connection between them and i started to think well you know i think that that's all right let them be friends oh, a weird sidebar um as i was reading and i don't know why my mind kept going this way i obviously know who nightmare is i've read the comics but for some reason whenever i would i, I was envisioning it in my head i kept seeing blackheart instead and i don't oh, know interesting and i don't know why <laughs> but it, it but it worked for me and i'm like this kind it of, does work yeah but i don't i don't i can't i can't explain why because I, I logically i know exactly who nightmare is but every time i was i was reading the pages and seeing how these characters were kind of interacting in my head i kept seeing blackheart instead that's really interesting. And I, I mean, I would have argued that that might be how he would appear to you in that case. And, and that would have been fine. Um, and really three people could be having a conversation with him and they're all seeing him a little bit differently. Sure. Um, and so through the course of the book, even when Stephen wasn't there, I was sort of sticking with Stephen's version of him, um, which now that I think about it, maybe it would have been fun to, to play a little bit more with exactly how Jane was seeing him. And st- I do describe him through her eyes, but um, – to really look at how different that might have looked than what Steven was seeing, but what, uh, what was it? Yeah, well, what was it like to uh, to write Wong? I mean, Wong doesn't get a lot of screen time, but he was definitely I here. I love Wong, and I'm a little bummed that I couldn't get him in there more. Um, yeah, he's a great character and such um, a wonderful uh, foil for Steven. You know that that just super calm energy and. Um, they both have that commitment, but Stephen's commitment is um, much uh, sort of hotter. There, there's like an intensity and uh, an activity to it, whereas Wong has the exact same level of commitment, but it's so much calmer and softer and less grasping, um, which is very Buddhist, I guess. Um, 
so I really enjoyed him and I would have loved to have him in there more. Um, and there was no reason I couldn't, he just didn't fit into this particular story. Um, that was actually, that was one of my questions was whether or not your use of him was curbed at all because of the upcoming movie. Yeah, no, he was allowed because he wasn't changing significantly. I think the ancient one was off limits because of the gender swap. And, you know, there were things that were happening with characters that they were different enough that we didn't want to contradict it. But Wong is pretty much Wong. And (laughs) so um, I guess we didn't know that for sure and wanted to be careful. But uh, no, it just that sort of, again, happened organically that he... It, the minute I decided he wasn't coming in to the dream realm uh, and wasn't part of that traveling party, he wasn't. Um, but he still is a really important anchor to Stephen um, and a very important relationship in Stephen's life. So, um, and Sharanya made a connection with him too. So he so he does appear and manages to stay present even though he's not physically there with them. Uh, he's a great character. He reminded me a little bit, of course, of Alfred back from my Batman days, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, but a, a different, uh, a very different relationship and a, a different lovely energy. It's interesting because imagining, like, I can't, can't even imagine what it would be like to have had Wong on that adventure because, as you said, like, they're going through Stephen's memories and that's already, or his nightmares and his, his vision of things, and that's already uncomfortable enough for the character. So having Wong there as well, who already he already has such a tight bond with, would have felt even more of a kind of a, a violation of his intimate kind of thoughts. Yeah, definitely. And Wong also knows things that um, those women don't know and it, it, like could have been commenting on things and, and sort of um, without meaning to changing things as, as he was like, well, you know, that never happened. And I could have swore it like if he says out loud some of the stuff that that Stephen figures out later, or, you know, would that dream have changed around them right in that moment? Probably. Um but yeah, having one more psyche in that realm was was too much. <laughs> Just because, and then you you have to deal with his vulnerabilities, and and um, I would love to do that someday, but um, I had to concentrate on the the little triad. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I guess I mean I can't even think of much personality ever really having been given to Wong, except for obviously in the current Jason Aaron run, there's been a lot more exploration to exactly what Wong does, but I can't really think of a lot of other explorations into really who he is and what he does. Hmm, that, well, now you're making me feel like that's overdue and we need to deal with that because I, I have a very strong sense of him and I think he's a really interesting character. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe he needs to come to the front a little bit more next time. <laughs> and I guess the, the movie kind of did a lot more with that because he was less of a um, faithful servant and much more of a already being a master on his own. Right, right. And yeah, he, I mean, his power levels are way up there too. And, and it's, and it is interesting to, th- you know, I think about this, it, the Alfred connection still in my head. You know, what does it mean to dedicate your life to service like that? And obviously for us reading the comics, it makes sense because we know how heroic these people are. And of, of course you want to serve them and um, be useful to them. But actually it's kind of an extraordinary decision to make and to mm-hmm. actually successfully do that with your whole life, not just in terms of all the time of your life, but really kind of everything that you're doing in your life is about that. Um, that's, that's really special and unusual. And yeah, and I guess in the current, in the current, uh, you know, Western civilization, we don't really have anything quite like that anymore. No. Yeah. 
Actually, I was. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched uh, the TV series Blunt Talk. Yeah, I was just thinking of that. I was the major. Yeah, Cause, cause <laughs> I was like, that's the closest example, right? Exactly. And and there was a, a relatively recent episode where they were having a discussion. The other people were questioning this and like, what do you mean his, you're his ma'am? And like, I'm right, his man. And they're like, his ma- I'm his manservant. And like, it's just such a foreign concept. But to him, it's this is his life. He's dedicated his life to the major. Like that's who he is, exactly. everything is That's measured so by funny. that. So it's interesting. I was thinking that exact thing. I was like, do I bring up Blunt Talk? Because, yeah, it's, it's the only other example I can think of. Um, and that, I mean, there's, um, you know, we know in terms of their relationship that Blunt saved his life at one point, and, and so and they have that war bond. Um, and I guess the same could be said for Wong and Steven. I mean, they're, they're kind of constantly at war. Mm-hmm. Um and the the uh, the universe, the greater universe, is so predatory and dangerous, and they know exactly, you know, what they're up against, and that they are kind of the only thing standing between um, all that danger and us here on Earth. So um, that it's an interesting piece to bring into it, sort of um, that the uh, bonds forged in crisis. When you were doing your research into Doctor Strange. Is Wong just kind of there at some point, or like does he does he ever get like kind of introduced in any way? That's a good question. Because um, we take it for granted that Wong's always there, but I'm, I'm now that I'm, I'm actually thinking about it, I don't know if we have kind of an origin for Wong. Not that there necessarily needs to be an origin, but like, how did he get there? Why is he there? Why is he so dedicated? I'm thinking that he was always attached to the sanctum, but I, I now I'm wondering if I'm being influenced by the movie, um, or if I actually read that somewhere. But yeah, that's a good point. I, I need to go look for that and trace him back. I think he was just sort of there um, uh, when he first came up in Dicko Lee, and I'm not sure his how he got there was explained, but... Um, yeah, that is interesting. When you were doing your Doctor Strange research, did you have a chance to read Doctor Strange The Oath? Yes, definitely. My my buddy Brian Vaughn. Yeah, I loved that one. Okay, because that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, it's a classic one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the art there is, well, very Ditko-esque. <laughs> it is, it's true. And and the story, again, uh, really uh, deals with that medicine and that science side of Stephen that I really liked as well. Um, that was one of the reasons I almost said no. I was like, oh, I hate following Vaughn's footsteps and anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> Um, when you guys were kind of laying everything out, how much were you given ideas that, of things that you couldn't touch from the movies? Like, was it kind of like they had kind of a list, don't go here, or was it ever, like, how how much did you know about what was going to be in the movie before it happened? Well, we knew, not, or I knew nothing anyway. I don't think they knew anything either. Um, I... Uh, what I was first given was a list of things we could use, like, you know, here are the people in his world, here are the other Marvel uh, magic users, and, um, you know, sort of pick from this, and, and Nightmare was on that list, and I saw him pretty fast and knew that that's where I wanted to go. Um, what I couldn't use came up in sort of a series of emails, and, and it started to sort of feel like a joke that every third email there'd be a new thing, um, and I'd be like, you know, did was it ever contradicted that he was born in Nebraska in 1932? Because that's great, and they're like, oh, just kind of be vague about that and oh, so what is this what's the status with Clea right now just just be vague and oh uh you know so the ancient one i can't like that's his most important relationship can i you know what what if i just don't discuss gender can can we get the character in there at all just be vague <laughs> so i've started to be like oh no this this book is going to be dr vague like what am i going to do <laughs> um but um you know the dream dimension uh, gave us a way to to get around all of that um 
And uh, yeah, and then I, I the the order was explicit not to contradict anything uh, from the movie. So the obvious follow up question to that is, okay, great, what's in the movie? Um, but crickets. There was there was nothing. Nobody. They, <laughs> I never. Um, I don't know if they didn't know, or I do know that Marvel Cinematic keeps you know very tight lid on things. So I'm not completely surprised, but um, I, I found it kind of amusing because I'd signed an NDA and stuff. Like you know, the people working on the character with you are totally safe, but uh, they were very protective, and we didn't know anything. So I was having the impossible writing assignment of avoiding uh, avoid something that you do not yet know what the content of it is. <laughs> Uh, what it was, was it? It was sort of a Zen Cohen, right? <laughs> yeah. What was it like uh, writing a little bit of Scarlet Witch in here? I liked her. She's fun. Um, yeah, it, 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 I love that there's a larger magic community around Stephen, and I loved thinking about how they all relate to him and what he means to them, and which I think is like a great combination of feeling like they have very intimate, close, um, usually mentorship like relationships with him, but also I think every single one of them knows they don't really know him at all, and that at some level they've they've been completely kept out of his inner world, um, and I, I really liked that tension. How did you like? What was the voice you you had in your head for uh, Scarlet Witch? Mm, um, maybe a, a slightly older version of the movie character, maybe, because okay. um, she's she's awfully young, and I feel like this was sort of later, maybe or. Um, I guess like a combination between her and and more uh, Avenger comic-y. And what about Doctor Voodoo? And like, what, what was it like? Kind of, I mean, you, you, it's a brief cameo for these these characters, so that you didn't really get right. deep into them. But I'm always interested when you kind of bring in these uh, for us name characters and for someone who <laughs> doesn't know this world. It's it could be anybody. Um, but what what was it about Doctor Voodoo that was like? Well, I want him to be one of the people here and present for this this meeting. Well, he, like Stephen, um, and I, I think I even say this, had a civilian life, um, and he was a psychiatrist instead of a neurosurgeon. Um, but I like that connection. Like, like, how weird is it, right, that you're a, you're a medical scientist, and then suddenly your life goes through these changes, and you veer off in magic. Um, and for any of these characters, you know, explaining how they even came to be at that table is so complicated, because you'd have to go through their whole origin story, and how they know Stephen, and um, how they're, you know, like that change I just described in two seconds is is actually you know six stories worth of drama um so uh it, it's the same exercise as what I did with Stephen where you kind of read everything you can get your hands on and you try to distill something um but in this case uh distilling it, it, something even smaller like I just need their their voice and their presence and their relationship to him for those 20 minutes um and what do they add? And so I guess mostly that was examining Stephen's place in the bigger magical community. But the, but yeah, each one of them. And then um, Satana is the other one that's there. And she's, um, you know, that she's literally not human, I thought was fascinating. She's a literal succubus. So, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, gives you, it gives you a sense of the scope of magic. Those are all three very different magic users, too. They use magic differently. Uh, they use it for different things. They came about it differently. Um, and I think it's kind of important to show that as much as possible in Doctor Strange, to keep hinting at how big that world is. Um, it's not just that he, you know, there's one magical force and he mastered it and now he just sort of keeps things in the world 
moving hunky dory. There's this huge, huge universe out there, and just galaxies upon galaxies of threats and hostilities. And um, he really has such a more deeper. You know, you mentioned eternity earlier, like that whole amazing story where the whole planet's destroyed and he's the only one that's sort of oh we're going to put everything back and they're not going to know it happened but you you're going to remember like that's that's horrifying and that's cosmic mm-hmm. um and his whole life is like that so um that it's trying to find different ways of showing that that here's his community of peers arguably and yet even among them you know he's relaxed he's casual they're drinking they're talking but he he's he's set apart from them in a way that he can't overcome what did you think of the dr strange movie I loved it. I thought it was really fun. I was so thrilled um, that they used diplomacy at the end. I wasn't expecting that, and I think that's such an important part of who Stephen is and what he does. So um, I was thrilled, and I thought the whole sequence that that happened around was really interesting um, and fun to watch. And I think uh, a lot of us had seen the previews and were worried that there was just too much visual inception going on. Um, so it was great to see that there were some absolutely Dicko-esque um, spheres that he moved through to. And I, I loved it. What did you think? Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was yeah. uh, it was a nice change of pace from some of the other Marvel movies because it, yeah. like, it ends in a different way. It didn't it just end in a you know giant battle sequence it was a lot smaller than that in a lot of ways like even though arguably it's a lot bigger than that but i was gonna say it's smaller or <laughs> you know what i mean like cause, because time itself <laughs> yeah it was interesting too that you know that we we've had so much of mo- a lot of movies these days that the bigger budget movies end up with just big sequences of destruction and here we get to see things put back to, to normal and that was kind right. of a nice reversal on what we've been seeing everywhere it's great, and it, and it, it again talks about that sort of dislocation that I think is at the heart of the Doctor Strange experience. That you um, you're expecting something, and it goes in a different direction. I think that's so important when you're meeting the character that you're thrown off balance like that. For and sure. I thought they did a really good job with it. Well, and also too, it's interesting. I, I was mentioning how you always made a very constant reference to the fact that his hands were always hurting, and they kind of did that in the movie too. Uh, <laughs> the idea that he had to kind of move move beyond kind of the, the physical restraints because he kept thinking. I'm going to use a Back to the Future comment, but not fourth dimensionally enough. Like he was, right. just, he was always <laughs> right. just thinking of using his hands in the traditional sense, and he wasn't allowing himself open to the spirituality and the the other side of magic. And I thought it was interesting that they kept kind of coming back to that that those limitations were only limitations he put on himself. Exactly. That was a great beat and a great uh, introduction to how to think about magic and and how um, living with it has to necessarily change your perspective on absolutely everything, um, which I found fascinating to work with. You know, it's it's, um, a microcosm for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting too because this is this was a big test for Marvel because this is the first time we've actually had real magic in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they went to pains to show that Thor's magic was just highly advanced technology. Right. So this was, but this is this is magic magic. This, this is magic magic. Yeah, yeah. Like um, right, and it opens up the the universe to all kinds of other possibilities and threats. Um, and I think you know, there's the hint. We know that it's kind of uh, going in with the the bigger Infinity Stone storyline. Um, but it, once you have Strange in there, there's kind of no limit to what you can introduce because the realms he deals with are so outside of what we're used to, even with the, all the alien technology and influence. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, and it's interesting too that like with with Ant Man you kind of got a glimpse of that too because even when he shrunk down to the point that he did, they were kind of alluding that there there's something else out there. 
Right. Like, it's not right. as simple as, as the world we've, we've come to know. And one thing I actually also liked as well is that um, uh, the Cloak of Levitation had a personality. I loved that. That was actually one of my favorite things. I, a friend of mine called me. I'm just like, I think I have a crush on the cloak. I'm like, I'm right there with you. <laughs> it's such a great character. Um, yeah, I, re- I really like that. And also, I think they have the same problem or, you know, um, uh, looking at challenge I did of, of that there's so much strange material out there. And how do you sort of come up with a definitive Stephen Strange to introduce to an audience? And I think they also did a really good job of, of taking elements of him from uh, different stories and medias and uh, and putting together something that really we cared about him and we understood him. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. How did you feel that Dormammu's head wasn't flaming in the same way? <laughs> I was okay with it, but. <laughs> It's such a silly thing to to notice, but I mean, like, it's such a a core defining trait. That being said, it was kind of like on like a blue flame. Well, and I read in one of the stories, and again, I, I like I read so much so fast, I can never pin. I, I feel bad because I'm not crediting writers, but that the fire was actually like the crown of command of the dark dimension. Okay. Um, and and so there's one story where it literally he loses it and it passes on to his sister. Um, so I guess you can make the argument that if that's true, then in the movie he maybe isn't ruling the dark dimension yet. It hasn't done his hostile takeover. Or... I'll give you a no prize for that. Okay. <laughs> that's not, that sounds plausible. Uh, well, um, any any final thoughts either on uh, on the on the book or on the movie? Um, just that I uh, so enjoyed writing it, and I really hope it's accessible. Um, and I, I wanted it to be meaningful to long term fans of Doctor Strange and accessible to people coming to the character for the first time, which is always a tricky thing to do. But um, my hope is that. Uh, that that's true of it. Um, I, I'm absolutely in love with the character now, so I'm so thrilled to have gotten this assignment because I feel like I've made a new friend that I'll have forever. Um, he's just an amazing character, and unlike uh, anyone else in the in the Marvel universe or really in Western literature, I mean, he's he's a very unique character. So uh, I hope people are enjoying all the different ways to connect with him. Oh, and I should mention um, the graphic audio uh, of. The Fate of Dreams just came out, which is really fun. It's um, instead of sort of your normal book on tape thing, they're not just reading it. They're actually doing more like a radio production with a full cast and music oh, wow. and sound effects. It's really fun. Yeah. So that's another way to uh, to get to the book. That's quite exciting. Yeah, it was really fun to listen to. I was thinking it's kind of like when an artist's pages come back in because, you know, you're writing something and you're, you're, um, then someone else interprets it. And this was being interpreted through sound as opposed to image. But it, it was it was really a kick to what see you, someone else's take on it. What's the, what's the, the voice of Doctor Strange like? Uh, it's not at all um, like the movie or like I was imagining in my head. And f- it bothered me for like mm, 40 seconds and then you're with them. And like the acting's so good that you're, you're – the minute you just go, okay, it's fine. That's him. Um, it's great. And and Sharanya's mom was everything. They nailed her. Oh, really? <laughs> I was so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, please understand who she's supposed to be. And they totally did. <laughs> uh, now, w- um, now, online, where can we find you? I am at DevonGraysonCentral.com. Excellent. Um, and and Got the Met on Twitter. Excellent. 
Um, and then you have an upcoming reprinting of uh, one of your other works, correct? Yeah, User, um, which was originally a Vertigo uh, three-part miniseries uh, back in the day, but we are uh, we collected it. It's three issues, um, and for some reason they weren't very well uh, labeled. So, like if you're looking for it on Amazon, it's really hard to tell if you're getting issue one, two, and three, or if you're you know you get two copies of two. Or <laughs> so we have it all together as one solid story um, in a. Um, a, a beautiful new edition that Sean Phillips put together. He's one of the original artists on it, along with John Bolton. So just gorgeous artwork. Um, and it's the most personal story I've ever written and still something I'm very proud of. So uh, that's coming out next spring, and I'm excited that people will get a chance to uh, to see it again. When did it first come out? In the uh, early 2000s, I think. Okay. What, what's it like kind of seeing something like that? Like it's... Obviously, it's, as you said, a very personal work, and it's been a while since it's kind of been all collected. How do you think it still resonates? Well, it's interesting. It's it's about um, online, uh, like kind of <laughs> online role play gaming. But of course, it's the very first iteration of that. So it's before avatars, um, which is an important part of the story because um, the players are are creating their own characters by describing them in writing, as opposed to having you know mm. sliders and avatars to. Um, and uh, that was such a real experience to me, and and so. Um, like it ended up having a strange prescience of how popular that kind of play is now and how important those characters are to people. Um, and I realized how special it was to have sort of been at the forefront of that and, and to be the first generation to, to find myself with those kind of tools um, to, to explore with. And so the, the story is really about um, uh, gender identity issues um, and using narrative and play to reshape the truth of your life. Um, so those are universal themes that are still relevant, but using the Internet as a tool in that, it's really interesting combination of um, being completely relevant to what's happening but also being um like the er material of that it's it's so much before uh, you know if i showed it to my kid now like he would have no idea what he was looking at like how is that a game i don't see anything you you have to read the text (laughs) what was it like working with those creators at the time Amazing, amazing. Um, and kind of like I was talking with the, the radio play that it's just so exciting to have someone else interpret your work. Um, those, it, it, with user, the, um, protagonist uh the characters that she creates as a real character that i created and role played with so he'd existed in my mind forever and i had such a strong sense of him but i'd never seen him there was no visual uh record of him anywhere and to have john bolton turn in a page and to suddenly see that character um alive and well it, it was amazing it was one of the more powerful moments of my life really did it match what was in your mind or yeah, totally, totally. I mean, it was, you know, a little bit different in in terms of it, you know, the, of a, the John Boltonness, like, but but only in good ways that he that he'd added his own energy to it. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was absolutely. There was one panel in particular where he's making an expression that I'm just like, God, how could he have known that? <laughs> that's exactly right, and that's exactly what he looked like. And, and that's coming out in the spring. Uh, yeah, May, I think. Wow, well, that's something exciting to look forward to yeah. for sure. Great, thank you. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming back on the show. It's been just over a year since your last visit, so maybe we'll get you back on in another year and a bit. Sounds good, and who knows what we'll be talking about by then. <laughs> I'm excited to hear what it might be. Great. <laughs> thank you so much, Evan. All right, thank you, Adam. Bye-bye. Bye.